Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Vita Podcast, where we help educate military veterans and their spouses on opportunities in Web3. Our plan is to host a series of industry leaders, many of whom are veterans or spouses themselves, so that we can learn about their journey down the crypto rabbit hole while understanding opportunities for transitioning veterans in the industry. I'm Chris Perkins, president of CoinFund. I'm a combat Marine veteran who spent 15 years on Wall Street before transitioning into the crypto space. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sponsor, Luca, who's dedicated their time and resources to make this podcast possible. For our 24th episode, we'll be speaking with U.S. Army veteran Jason Hall, co-founder and CEO of Methodic Capital. Welcome, Jason. Thank you very much, Chris. Appreciate you having me. Awesome. Let's start by hearing about your background. Tell us how it all started. Sure. Um, I think I, I have a little bit different background maybe than some folks you've had on. Um, I was enlisted. So I actually enlisted while I was in high school. Everybody always asks, why would, why would you do such a thing? Uh, I, I wanted to go to college is, is the uh, honest answer. And there wasn't a, uh, an easy path to get there in, in, uh, in my family. And there was a bit of military history as well, um, although it wasn't talked about very much. But, um, you know, I, I felt like military gives you really a combination of both the experiences that you gather while you're in and then the opportunities and experiences that you have uh, after you get out, um, which is kind of what we're talking about here. So for me, the Army was a, a path to go to school and to build up some fundamental experiences for my life. So another way to say it was that you worked for a living as opposed to, uh, to the officers, right? Uh, I, you know, it's just, it's a different, uh, it's a different job, you know, it's just a different job. The officers have their own struggles for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Now I understand you were a Ford Observer, is that right? Uh, I was, I was a 13 Foxtrot was my MOS. Uh, I had an opportunity to go to Navy nuke power school. But that is not the experience that I wanted. (laughs) So I turned down a Navy nuke power school contract uh, to be a forward observer, which is a lot of people called a move of limited wisdom at the time. Um, I think it worked out okay. But but yeah, I came in fully enlisted uh, combat arms MOS. I was a forward observer too. It's a fun job. Um, Any any particular like formative moments in the military that, that shaped you going forward? Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, I, I, th- I can think of two uh, for certain. I mean, I was a very unlikely enlisted man in, in the Army. I was, uh, didn't play sports in, in high school. Uh, I was 6'2", 160 pounds when I went in, which I was teased mercilessly about uh, during basic training. And, um, you know, it was not an easy uh, transition for me into, into military life, for, for sure. And uh, in basic training, I actually barely made it out. I got injured uh, at the end of basic training. I guess I can talk about this now because a lot of time has gone by, but I actually uh, got orders to a medical platoon after uh, basic training and not to proceed to AIT, advanced individual training. I found my orders and tossed them in the trash and went on to uh, AIT anyway, where um, I was actually honor graduate uh, when I left. So uh, it ended up okay, um, but it was definitely a move of like, you know, 
kind of taking the bull by the horns a little bit and uh, definitely kind of a gutsy thing to do. And especially for someone who really had a lot of struggles in basic training, but turning that around and sort of saying like, I'm not going to fail at this. I'm just going to like dig deep and, and get through this and graduate well. You know, I didn't have to fortunately do that particular thing many more times in, in my life, but, but certainly that sort of ethos that was built in that, in that experience was um, kind of formative for me to just gut it out, you know. What a cool story, man. So you go on to become honor graduate. And did you have any deployments during, uh, during your tenure in the Army? Uh, I did. So when I, uh, I was stationed in uh, Fort Drum, New York, 10th Mountain Division, um, and I got assigned to uh, 2nd to 22nd Infantry Battalion, and we left shortly after my arrival uh, f- to uh, Bosnia. So this was in the mid, I'm dating myself here, but this was in the mid 90s. So this was the sort of tail end uh, of the war over there. And that was, I mean, I think anybody that was in the military that's done any sort of overseas deployment, almost regardless of, of what it was, is going to call that a, a pretty formative experience. Um, for me, it was like yet, yet another culture shock, uh, you know, having gone from a kid from, you know, Fairfield County, Connecticut, uh, into, into the military. And then from there into, into Bosnia was, was, uh, I mean, honestly, it was a great experience. I think the perspective that you get, uh, from a deployment is, uh, just really unlike anything you can really get elsewhere. Maybe if you're Doctors Without Borders or something like that, you'll find yourself in situations where you can really sort of get those experiences and see that side of sort of humanity and and life and how other people live. Um, But yeah, that was definitely a a huge, huge uh, formative experience for me. Got it. Uh, So then you came back home. Um, Eventually you rotated out of the army. Uh, Tell us about that transition. What was it like? Hard. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of, um, I, I've listened to a lot of, you know, veteran interviews and things, and it, it, it seems like you get, you know, two flavors. Um, you get folks that, you know, really struggle, unfortunately, when they come out, you know, could be um, traumatic brain injury, which is a huge problem, could be post-traumatic stress, et cetera. And, you know, it's just folks that really have to process a lot um, to get back on their feet after military service. And then you have these uh, you know, folks that really have these kind of meteoric careers, maybe they came out of the soft community or maybe they were, uh, you know, combat vets and, and, you know, got out and went to Ivy League schools and, you know, had sort of great careers. <clears throat> um, my, my sort of transition out was, was pretty much in the middle of that. Um, I, I got out to go to school. September 11th happened shortly after I ETSed. And the deployments really started to kick off at the tail end of my eight-year contract. So I was stayed in the National Guard when I got out. I had this weird experience coming out of the military where I was in college. <clears throat> I was struggling to just like be a college student after coming out of <clears throat> the, you know, the types of experiences that I had um, in a combat arms unit. There's a variety of sort of struggles, I think, that you're just innate to that experience. Um, and then have, having September 11th and starting to see the units get called up, um, you know, right in that 2003, 2004, 2005 time period where I was kind of done and out and then yeah. having to sort of wrestle with, man, do I go back in? Do I not? Uh, yeah. You know, it was, it was actually pretty tough for me to 
to transition out if I'm being honest. Yeah, I can imagine you've got that looming in the back of your head. So, so you, you, you went through school um, and, you know, graduated. Can you, can you walk us through, you know, a lot of times people, you know, a lot of the officers obviously went to school first. You, you kind of, as an enlisted man, you went to service and then you went to school and then bam, you know, you start hitting the, the job scene. Where did you go from there? Where did your career take you? Yeah, it was an interesting path. Um, so when I was uh, getting out of school and kind of transitioning to the private sector, I had aspirations of being in in finance and, and investing, um, getting into financial services. I think pre a lot of the veterans programs that exist now in the banks and, and things like that. And so it was a pretty difficult um, transition for me. I actually got very fortunate um, I met a, a guy who was in the process of winding down his fund of funds. He's a very, very successful trader. He was winding that down into a family office, and I was able to sort of come on and, and be mentored by him um, as a trader. At the time, he was trading a lot of equity derivatives. Uh, and so I was able to kind of work under his tutelage as like a junior trader, uh, just sort of piggybacking on on some of his trades and just learning how he reads the market and and. I did that actually for quite a while and it was, it was an incredible experience. It led me uh, to move to a small frontier hedge fund uh, where I worked as an execution trader for, for a while and then actually transitioned from there to uh, Bridgewater Associates, uh, which is a, a large global macro fund. If you're not familiar with it, <clears throat> kind of a famous culture, but you know, my, you know, that was, that was kind of how I got my, my toe in uh, was just as a very junior trader. How, how did you find this mentor? How did it happen? When I was in school, uh, I was still working and going to school at the same time. And I was working actually as a trainer, uh, which was kind of a natural thing to do uh, as a part-time thing when you're uh, fresh out of the military. And so I actually met his wife uh, through, through my training job. And, you know, got sort of very friendly with their family. They're very, very nice people, very sweet people. And I expressed a a real interest in what he did uh, and a willingness to to work it out. Um, So it was, you know, again, standing in the right place at the right time and and kind of seizing the right opportunity when it presented itself. So so you go from, you know, effectively shadowing uh, your mentor eventually takes you to uh, an execution trading job. And then you end up at Bridgewater, um, which is known, as you said, for its culture, its culture of radical transparency. I, I don't know what you can tell us about Bridgewater, because I know they're, they're pretty strict, but like, what was that experience like? And then um, can you walk through where you went from there? I mean, I think it was a great experience. Uh, I was there for four and a half years, which in, you know, in Bridgewater, there's always a joke that it's sort of like dog years, uh, you know, one year at Bridgewater, seven years elsewhere. I don't know if that's actually true, but uh, it's sort of the joke. Um, it was great. I mean, it's again, it, it, it sort of keeps with this theme throughout my life and career of um, culture shock or ending up in these like very differentiated situations, which I actually think when you have a background in the military, you just you can sort of get that beaten into you per, pretty early. Um, and if you learn how to harness that, it's a pretty powerful thing. And so coming into Bridgewater was another example of very, like you said, very unique culture, very transparent, very straightforward, much more academic 
than you would get in the military. You know, nobody's yelling at you or, or anything like that. It's not an aggressive place to work, but it is extremely uh, forthcoming with its feedback. And, you know, for me, that wasn't that difficult of a thing. There were other things working there that were quite difficult to get used to. But I think, uh, you know, if you spend a period of time in service, you make a lot of mistakes. I mean, that's the reality. And the more challenging an environment you find yourself in the military, the more mistakes you're going to make and you're going to get called out on them and you're going to grow to want to be called out on them. And so when you move to a corporate you know, environment where that's the mode of, of operating, it's not that foreign. It's certainly different. Um, but I felt pretty well set up for that part of the culture. Got it. And what was your role there? I, were, I actually started uh, recruiting for their investment teams and then uh, moved on to a team lead position and then eventually transferred into the front office. And I worked on the portfolio associate team, specifically my job, and I guess this will come up later in this conversation, but specifically my job was managing uh, the benchmark exposure. So this was your broad sort of beta market exposure and uh, index replication uh, as well. How did you get into crypto, Jason? So I was an early, so the same mentor uh, was, you know, somebody that was always sniffing around new technologies and new asset classes uh, and, and turned me on to Bitcoin. This would have been in 2013, I think. So I was a very early uh, Bitcoin miner, not aggressively enough, uh, clearly, but that was my my first foray into crypto. Uh, I mined Bitcoin for a while, and you know, in in those days, uh, you know, Bitcoin did well, but it just sort of scraped along the bottom. You know, it was a long time before we got the big spike, yeah. and there wasn't really um, a career path in crypto at that yeah. time. Some people made one and were and very successfully so. Um, but for me, I was trying to get from, you know, uh, a mentee to a trader to a, you know, in, into a large hedge fund. And so I really just sort of set crypto aside. And it wasn't until actually not that long ago, around 2021, that I was catching up with a former Bridgewater colleague of mine, who's somebody that I respect greatly as, as both an investor as, and just as an intellectual. And he was transitioning out of the buy side to focus full time on a DAO, which was a, to me was sort of a mind blowing career transition, but we started talking about it, you know, a lot. And, you know, that sort of started the planted the seed of, for crypto. Yeah, for those who don't know, DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization, um, which that, that industry has had its ups and downs as well. So you got into, into Bitcoin and then, you know, you started, you got, you turned back in in 21 and like, was there a, did you have an epiphany at a certain point? It's like, that's it. Like, you know, this is going to be big. And like, what's your overall thesis on, on crypto? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think for, for sure. Um, and, and it came in the form of, due diligence. Uh, so I'm kind of a, um, I'm, I'm a relatively risk averse person for, for crypto. You meet a lot of very risk seeking people in crypto. I would not count myself as one of those. So it was a lot of me, you know, calling the people that I respected the most in the space and, um, and, and even people that were skeptics as well. 
and just trying to kind of understand how, you know, I, I had an inroad into DeFi, decentralized finance and Web3 and, and the whole, you know, made the discord rounds and things of that nature and kind of had a flavor of what was happening on the ground and then went to the sort of back to my TradFi contacts and said, hey, what do you think about this? And, and the thing that I, that I kept hearing was, we love it, but, and that was like the start of every conversation. I, we love the infrastructure. We love the technology. We love the possibilities, but there's this impediment or there's this reason why we're not coming in. And this became for me, like the most enticing problem set ever, because it's like, okay, well, can I solve part of that problem? Everybody's got a, but, so there's a barrier that's there. And it's not been solved yet. And so can I get into this problem set and solve it? And I think that's, you know, Web3 Web has the ability to just globalize and somewhat homogenize the financial services experience across all populations and all, you know, users of financial services, which is all of us. And but there's a lot that needs to be built. There's a lot that hasn't been done yet. There's a lot of ambiguity around the regulatory environment. We're kind of writing the rules to the game while we're playing it. And it's a very fast paced game. So it's a, it's a really difficult environment, I think, to operate in, in certain ways, but that difficulty to me was just super energizing. So you went on to, to found and co-found uh, Methodic Capital. What was that decision-making process like, you know, to go out on your own to become, you know, an entrepreneur and founder? Well, I mean, it was a, it was something I always wanted to do, but I think one of the benefits of Web3 and one that I really capitalized on is unlike in traditional finance, if you want to start a, a hedge fund or an asset management firm, that ground is so well uh, worn at this point uh, and the barrier to entry is ridiculously high and the hurdle to which you can actually have impact in a broad sense is very high as well because there's so many established players. And, but it was something I always wanted to do, but I'm a pragmatist. And so there was no real sort of trad five version of me being able to do that. What became you know, obvious, the more conversations I had with institutions that were interested in, in Web3 and wanting to come into this space is that there was a dearth of safe investment vehicles out there to give people like what I was doing at Bridgewater, which is broad benchmark indexed, you know, very precise uh, return streams in crypto in a way that was as compliant and safe as humanly possible. And that just became sort of the siren call that I couldn't really ignore because it was the thing I was passionate about. And it was solving a, a real problem in an industry that I think has real potential. So can you walk a little bit more specifically then into Methodic Capital? You know, what are you planning to do? What problems are you trying to solve? Um, how, is, how are things going? Um, but we'd love to get an update on, on how your building is coming. So Methodic Capital is, um, you know, this kind of a current state and a future state way of, of looking at it. The, the current state is rolling out a series uh, of passive indexed private funds. These are, you know, low cost professionally managed, highly compliant funds that allow investors um, both on-chain, but probably more importantly off-chain, 
to gain uh, investment exposure, asset exposure to uh, DeFi into the crypto uh, ecosystem. And what that uh, looks like for us initially is the launch of a private uh, ETH staking fund. So it, you know, for those of you that are, you know, not familiar, Ether or the Ethereum network is um, second largest to to Bitcoin, um, but the largest sort of layer one, if you will, DeFi uh, chain. And it is um, an exposure that's not terribly difficult to get on its own as simply the price of of Ether, but it is actually quite difficult to get the reward rate, what could be thought of as the yield of the Ethereum chain, uh, in addition to the price. So the total return of ETH, which would be the price plus the, the reward rate on top of that. Why it's difficult to get in the problem that we're solving is that um, a lot of, for U.S. investors in particular, a lot of the centralized exchanges that offer this exposure have come under fire from regulators. Some have been fined. Some have gotten the famous Wells notice um, that that goes around from the SEC on occasion when they're looking and really scrutinizing into something. And this has caused a climate where a lot of investors have come off of those platforms. And so we're looking to kind of fill that void by offering that total return to them. In addition, there are certain investors on the sidelines that can't hold crypto on their balance sheet, um, but they're interested in the space, but they can hold private fund shares. And so this is where the private fund structure, again, comes into play and sort of offers uh, to, to bridge that gap. So it'll be a series of funds that will roll out. Um, ETH staking is just the first one of, of several. And then hopefully in the future, what that becomes is a platform <clears throat> where you have a series of funds that you can invest in, but you also have a shared infrastructure um, and a shared sort of back and middle office technology layer for emerging managers in the blockchain space that are looking to launch strategies. Launching funds is very expensive. It's very difficult. Um, tokenized fund shares is a relatively new uh, sort of vehicle, if you will, for private funds. And so we're looking to kind of bring all of that together in, into, into a platform in the future. It's, it's kind of ironic. You know, you, you started your career as a forward observer, right? Your military career. You're on the frontier, you're, you're on like, you know, the tip of the spear and you're watching, right? And I guess in this case, you're not watching the enemy, you're watching this incredible, like what I like to call the staking economy emerging. So it's almost like, it's so ironic that, you know, you're again being a forward observer in a way, because, you know, you're seeing this incredible innovation, you're on the front line uh, and you're, and as an entrepreneur, you're building, um, pretty, pretty important, I think, uh, solution for those institutional clients. I mean, we talk, you and I talk about the yield all the time. That Ethereum yield is fascinating. Um, it's material. And um, if you're making it easy for institutions to, to achieve that yield, and, and, you know, you know, we think that it probably is going to compete at some point with other yields. Um, it, it's a really interesting space to be. I mean, you know, academically, I find it incredibly fascinating. It's a, um, it, it is a fascinating, the thing that makes it so interesting for me is you can look at it. If you talk to an equity person, they're going to call it a dividend rate. If you talk to a fixed income person, they're going to call it, you know, a coupon rate or, or uh, you know, a yield. And, yeah. um, and I, 
I think everyone's right. Um, but then at the same time, everyone's wrong as well, because it's kind of none of those things. Um, and, and it behaves, I think the thing that's so interesting, especially about, um, ether, by the way, by the way, is it behaves unlike other yields. So just the nature of the, of how the interest rate changes based on economic drivers that, that push that, that interest rate, it behaves in a diversifying manner. Um, and so that becomes just a very interesting addition to, to a portfolio. So, um, I guess you and I could geek out on this for, for a long time. <laughs> I get excited, but we'll lose the listeners. Let's talk about you, Jason, a little bit more. So um, sure. can you walk through what it's like to be an entrepreneur and like, what's a typical day? You're, you're building a business. I mean, I imagine you're in, going in a thousand different directions. Um, what's, a, what's a typical day like? <laughs> a typical day is, uh, you know, the evening before I have a huge flow chart tracker of everybody doing, you know, their different steps in sort of launching this product. And so it's, you know, we have probably six or seven different partners with different work streams. And when I wake up in the morning, I check all the things that went wrong while I was asleep. And then I spend three quarters of my day trying to fix, uh, you know, all of the problems that occurred. And I, I think it's just a, you know, it's a, it's kind of a, you know, the fog of war is kind of an overused analogy, I think. But then at the same time, you know, the best laid plans, you know, we have everything kind of laid out um, and your job or my job just becomes a lot of, of problem solving, um, which I which I actually really enjoy. Um, but that really becomes just a huge component. And it changes depending on where we are in the launch cycle right now. We're very, very close to launch. And so it's just a, a lot of pressure. It's a lot of, you know, follow ups and, and tasks and whatnot. But um, but yeah, my day is just a lot of unblocking um, one of the things that, that, you know, as a forward observer, you, you've heard the term force multiplier before. I look at my role as a, as a, a CEO and a co-founder co as an enablement function or a full force multiplier function, not as the, you know, the end all be all of, of everything that's happening. So we have trusted, uh, I've trusted co-founders who are very experienced and, and very smart. We have trusted partners that are working very hard. And so my job is really just to make sure that they can be as successful as possible so that we can all be successful. Um, and, you know, and ultimately I think doing all of that with, and being able to kind of abstract out of it and make sure that we're faced in the right directions and that we're upholding the kind of basic principles on which this entire project is founded, which is to do things with a high degree of precision, to do things extremely compliantly um, to be as sort of forward looking from a regulatory and fiduciary responsibility uh, perspective as possible and to be able to stay nimble and do things that frankly haven't really been done before, um, but uphold sort of all of those basic values. And, and that becomes, you know, enough of a job for me and probably a couple of other people. That's great. What advice would you give to a veteran trying to break into the space? Well, I would start off with, um, I think this is a great space for, for veterans. So, and, and here's why. If you think about, <clears throat> I mean, let's assume that this sort of hypothetical person is interested in either technology or financial services, whether it's asset management or you know, what, trading or what have you. If you look at those traditional industries, whether it's big tech or, or finance, 
there's really well-worn paths there. You kind of go to certain schools, have certain majors, get certain jobs, get a master's, et cetera. And a lot of veterans have these kind of existential conversations when they're transitioning or, uh, or just afterwards of where do I fit in? How do I have impact? How do I map my experiences from the military onto the private sector and, and, have, uh, and have impact? And there's certainly avenues to do that and, and successful ways of doing that in traditional industries. But you, you are, you know, there's no getting away from the fact that you are non-traditional in your background when, when yep. you do that. In Web3, there's really no notion of a traditional background. So th there's no, like, the, the well-worn paths that are not worn yet. Uh, and so what you find is, a, is an incredibly, uh, like, heterogeneous workforce in Web3 that have uh, backgrounds uh, of all types that, that you could possibly imagine. So for starters, Web3 kind of strips away this notion of like, I'm different uh, and, and therefore I need to like take some action to, to, to fit in. And then also, and I've, I've said this and maybe it's a little bit disparaging to the space, but I, I also think it's important. Web3 is very young. It's a very immature industry and you have brilliant people working very hard and doing amazing things, but that doesn't take away from the fact that there's still just a lot of people that are new to their careers and are kind of missing just what I would call leadership or operational discipline and what have you. And so all of a sudden your experience in the military becomes highly impactful in a management position, even if you're content agnostic, if you don't know, you know, the content, you do know how to lead a team. You do know how to work with people of you know, international backgrounds or different backgrounds. And so you can, you can apply that here in a way that's, that's super impactful. Um, and, and also, you know, lastly, I would say it is a very ambiguous, very fast moving space. And a lot of things that are done here have not been done before. And there's a lot of just figure it out. And contrary to, I think the myth of the veteran or of the service person, um, that being like sort of the robot that needs orders to be followed and everything's got to be very prescriptive. I, if that veteran exists, I've never met them. Veterans are uniquely capable of dealing with things breaking, things going wrong, priorities shifting, the rules changing, et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of just comes with the nascent stage of this industry. Yeah. I mean, there's so many important points you made there, Jason. Like, for example, Ethereum is less than 10 years old. So there's nobody in the world who's got more than 10 years of experience in Ethereum. Like, so you're, you're already starting at the starting point. You're coming to the industry with a number of skills that nobody can teach. And the other thing I like is that most of what we do in Web3 is open source. So if you it really, it's up to you to control how quickly your technical uh, acumen gets up to speed because it's there. You just got to spend the time and passion and get up to speed. But you bring with you all those experiences. I mean, those are so many amazing points that, that you really unpacked. So we talked about the, the staking economy that we were both geeking out about, getting super excited about. Are there other verticals within Web3 uh, as you look out on the frontier uh, that excite you? I think, um, and I was uh, just talking about this, I think there's this um, idea of, I think I described it earlier as this homogenization of financial services. Um, an example of this would be, you know, payment infrastructure in a place like Africa. 
you know, there's areas of the world where their banking and financial systems are, you know, decades behind, you know, what you would have in a, in a quote unquote developed economy. And, you know, Web3 has and decentralized finance has this um, sort of amazing potential to leapfrog those uh, areas and those populations from, you know, 1980s banking infrastructure to, to, to 2023 in one shot. Um, and so you, you see that in the form of, of, of payments, of cross-border payments. Um, there's really interesting projects that are happening everywhere around, um, you know, as a trader, access to pricing of things like, let's talk about commodities. This is not a small deal thing. If you look in rural India, which is a highly agrarian economy, there is no, you know, broad access to the value of the things that you grow. And there's no easy access to actually, even if you had the data to actually achieve that price for the sale of your commodity. And there are projects right now that I've talked to that are, that are looking to, to solve that problem, which is a very tactical, tangible problem that is being solved by a very tech, you know, forward solution. So I think, you know, web, it's a it's sort of a pretty grandiose thing to say, but I think that decentralized finance and Web3 really has the potential to just sort of level the playing field across a variety of different economies and population groups that right now are all over the map in terms of how advantaged they are to with access to, to financial technology. That's awesome. Uh Jason, are you are you guys hiring right now? Well, we're not hiring, but we are taking on uh, interns, and we have one that's starting who's transitioning out uh, of a of a tier one unit in the army. I'll leave you to figure out what unit that is, but uh, he is retiring after twenty years and, and coming on board, and that is a a program that we would like to perpetuate. Um, so we would like to use, um, you know, where we are in our growth uh, arc, which is unfortunately not able to hire, but but definitely able to give people responsibilities and experience and hopefully springboard them into the industry. So that's where our focus is right now from a from a talent perspective, if you will. Were you able to do that through the skills bridge program? Uh, no, he was somebody that one of our advisors actually just reached out that that knew and kind of reached out awesome. to us directly. Oh, that's just really cool. Any last thoughts today, Jason? Well, I would say to to folks, and I, I guess it's sort of top of mind just because we're talking about the our, our intern who's who's retiring. Um, anybody that's coming out of the military, you know, you are young, uh, and and this is an odd thing for me to say, but I think a lot of times, and myself included, when you come out, you find yourself the oldest person in the room a lot because you're just you know in a peer group that is, you know, earlier in their career. Um, but play the long game. You know, there, there is, you, you have um, plenty of years to close whatever gap it is that you're perceiving and your experiences in the military are going to springboard you past uh, a lot of those peers that you may feel a bit behind when you initially transition out. So I think uh, if people just play the long game and, uh, and focus on what they're passionate about and, and, and don't forget the things that you learned in the military, but really actively try to apply them to your, to your business life. Uh, it will serve you very, very well. 
that's, that's, those are some great thoughts. A uh, last question. How can people connect with you? Uh, well, you can visit our uh, website, which is just methodiccapital.com. Um, my email, if you want to reach me, is just my first name, Jason at methodiccapital.com. And you can find us on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. If you're um, more in tune with the social media uh, outlets, that's uh, I'm not a hard person to find. I'm happy to talk to anybody out there that that wants to chat. Hey, thanks, Jason. Really appreciate you coming on today. Best of luck with the launch of Methodic Capital. Uh, we're all pulling for you. We hope you're going to be successful, and we're certain that you will be. And also want to thank our sponsor, Luca. Uh, for those of you who are interested in learning more about uh, veterans and digital assets, please connect with us on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. And uh, always reach out to me if you need anything, PerkinsCR97 on Twitter. Thanks again, Jason. Thank you, Chris. Really appreciate it.